Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Maine, or wherever you get your podcasts. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Pride Connection. This is Blind LGBT Pride's weekly ACB radio program. We are glad to have you here today. This show is going to be just a little bit different. My name is Leah Gardner, and I am flying solo this week. I know you're used to hearing Anthony Corona and our president, Gabriel Lopez Cafati, with me. However, they were busy this weekend with the Florida Council of the Blind virtual convention. I hope that I can fill their shoes because that is going to be extremely difficult. However, I have a wonderful guest on today's program. We have a lot to talk about and Anthony and Gabe will be back next week. So on today's show, we are featuring one of our new BPI members, Sarah Chung. Sarah Chung identifies as a Korean American Paralympic athlete who is also a queer person. Sarah, did I get everything I wanted to say into that introduction? Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. That's my hope. I try, I try to nail it and sometimes I miss and sometimes I hit the head. We're going to talk to Sarah today about her life, her Paralympic activities, and many other things. So, Sarah, you are, I believe, a first-generation Korean-American, correct? Yep. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about what it means to grow up with both cultures in your household? One foot in, in American society and one foot in Korea. It took a long time for me to come to terms with my various identities. And culturally, it was, it was really hard because at home I would live as expected with my parents. There would be strict things um, that I had to follow. And there was just a lot of things that I couldn't relate to in terms of my peers that lived in their own homes within the society that we live in. And then when I would go to school, all of this cultural dissonance would appear. You know, for example, my lunches wouldn't be the same as my peers. And sometimes I would have like language gaps. So I went to Korean school for, for years. I, I sacrificed my Saturdays to go to Korean school for the majority of my youth. And that was really tough because you didn't get a Saturday to just chill and relax and be with your friends or whatever. So it was tough in that I had responsibilities that some of my peers didn't have, that I really had to work hard to kind of manage all of my feelings about that. But um, it was just difficult. And I didn't really understand everything until I was an adult, I guess, coming to terms with myself. So did you grow up in a relatively diverse 
school system or were you, you know, maybe one of the only kids from another culture, the only Asian child in your class? I was one of maybe four or five Mm -hmm. Asian um, students in my high school, Uh, even in elementary school. It was my community is 90% white. Uh, or Caucasian, whichever PC term you want to use. But at the same time, I didn't know really any of the other Asian kids in my group or in my high school class very well either. Like we weren't close. The common misconception is that we all know each other and that, you know, everyone's friendly with everybody. Uh, Not really for me. That wasn't my journey. I was one of the only Asian kids and I was the only blind kid at my school. There's two minorities put together, which makes it difficult. Because I think when you're, you know, when you're growing up, and you're in school, one of the things that I think kids often try to do is they don't like to be different. They like to fit in as smoothly as possible with their peers and be part of the group. And anyone that sort of is outside of that mold, I think a lot of times has a really difficult journey ahead of them in terms of school. Because I think kids... They're not so much about demonstrating your uniqueness. They're about fitting in. Mm -hmm. Were you at that time going to school? Was there ever a point where you were like, I wish that I was white too. I wish that I were the same as everybody else. I wish that I didn't have to deal with this kind of feeling separated from everybody. Or did you embrace the fact that you were Korean-American? It was kind of a mixture of both. It really depended on the situation. My parents took me to um, a Korean church when I was growing up. And in that situation, no, I didn't wish that I was anything but Korean, you know, at that time. Mm -hmm. But when I was with folks that didn't share my cultural identity, I did feel othered a lot. And I felt like I had to be similar to those around me. And there was this immense amount of pressure to blend, even though I clearly wasn't going to blend with everyone else. That's just the reality of it. Even now as an adult, when I'm visiting home, I'm typically the only Asian person there. Um, So yeah, sometimes I, of course, I wanted to feel like I fit, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still very proud to be who I am. I'm just wondering if, if more of the pride developed and evolved as an adult when you absolutely yes. old enough to gain gain more appreciation for your culture and and what that meant to you absolutely so i didn't really explore my my asian identity until i started going into chicago more often i lived primarily in the suburb of chicago so in my suburb like i said it's it's 90% caucasian and it's it's suburb where you have to have a car to get around so meeting my friends my friends would pick me up and um, there were really no places to like hang out, truthfully. We'd go to like, the movies and things like that. But even at the movies, I didn't see other Asian people. So it wasn't until, I, I want to say college, where I got to really get in touch with my, my Korean identity um, and exploring different identities. It's, it just seems to me that that could feel really lonely and isolating as a child and, and young teen trying to figure out who you are as a individual and what your culture means to you. Before anything else, I knew I was blind. Like that was the one thing that Mm -hmm. I absolutely 100% knew. And (laughs) 
<laughs> like it was before my Koreanness even, I, I was mm -hmm. told, you know, you're going to have to work three times as hard as everyone else. No one's going to help you just out of the blue. You're going to have to be super independent. You're going to have to do this and that. And people are going to treat you differently because you're Korean, you know, like things like that. People are going to treat you differently because you're blind. I'm probably talking way too fast, but it, this is something that yeah. I experienced constantly growing up was, you know, I have to, if I don't have this one identity in check, I have to have this identity check. And I, before I knew it, I had check boxes upon check boxes <laughs> of things that I had to make sure that I had to do correctly in order to present a certain way. No pressure, right? No, no right. pressure. Absolutely at all. no pressure. You have to please all of your communities, all of them. <laughs> and all, all splendidly, 100%. Right. You know? Absolutely. Perfectionism. Like, life is a test. You, you got you know, you to get all the questions exactly right and get your A or else exactly. you're going to have some trouble. In terms of, of uh, being blind, I, I believe that you uh, consider yourself to be low vision. So correct me if I'm wrong about that. No, you're Continue. right. Uh, okay. Vision okay. Is, is accurate. Yeah. I'm curious about the school system, um, how your school system dealt with that, because I feel sometimes like a lot of kids that are low vision, there's some question about the best way to adapt learning. I mean, I grew up in a school system where like I was the only totally blind child. So they kind of knew what to do with me. Right. I mean, they taught me mm -hmm. Braille and then I learned computer skills, but I'm kind of wondering about your experience because I think sometimes a lot of kids uh, who are low vision sometimes can kind of fall through the cracks because a lot of times they do not learn Braille because they're asked to use as much sight as possible. And so I'm wondering if you did learn Braille, if you learned uh, skills that people that are totally blind would traditionally learn or how much support you got going through this, the school system? Uh, going through the school system, I did learn Braille. I, at the very least, as an adult, no grade one. And now since UEB is a thing, I, I'm not quite sure. I haven't caught up, but I did learn contracted Braille too, grade two as well. And they did teach me those things, fortunately. Um, technology wasn't as strong as it is today when I was in school. So we used a lot of large print everything and CCTVs, and I owe it to my vision teachers, my vision itinerants, and my own M instructors. Um, if I didn't have those folks in my life, then I don't know where I would be. I don't think I would be as persistent. But education has always been kind of a kryptonite to me. I still want to pursue an education, and I always wanted to do well in school, but there just came a point where I had to do a lot of things for myself. For example, if my vision itinerant couldn't make it in, I had to enlarge my own papers and the machine was touchscreen. You know, they had some buttons and it was touchscreen. And I'm like, how the heck am I supposed to learn how to do this when this should be already done for me? More so in the years of high school, I had to do a lot of things on my own uh, when my teachers couldn't make it in. You know, that's not their fault. It's limited resources. There, there's constant need for, for teachers um, in the field. So I don't blame it on them whatsoever. I wish that it was better that there was more resources and there should be more resources. But it was, it was tough, admittedly. It was tough growing up. I think a lot depends on the school system. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, I, on a personal level, I was lucky enough to be in a district that I was really pushed to be as independent as possible. And I was given a computer to work with actually when I was nine. And that was like 1985. Mm. Going through some of school, I had like my own little room that I'd go to to get work done and type things on the computer and print them out. But 
I've also known kids that grew up with absolutely no resources at all who basically had an aide sit next to them in the classroom and write all their notes for them. So I've seen both sides of the spectrum. You know, it sounds like you did have some really great responsible and when I was growing up, we called them VI instructors. I mm-hmm. believe now they tend to be called TVIs, yes. um, teachers of the visually impaired. Yes. They, they were called visual itinerants. And then, then at some point, the name changed. But I still feel like a lot of kids now are not getting even the minimum of what they need. So I'm really glad to hear that you did get some assistance kind of guiding you through. I did. I was very lucky in that regard. However, we did really have to work for it because there was a significant language barrier uh, for my parents to ensure that I got these services. I don't know how they did it, but they managed to. And it's, I give my parents a lot of credit because it's not easy to, you know, not have English as your first language and to make sure that you get services for your kid. So I I owe them that. (laughs) So, all right, you graduated high school, you went to college, Yes. And what did you get your degree in? Um, I got my undergraduate degree in communications with an emphasis in rhetoric. And I went to graduate school for counseling with a specialization in sports psychology. So um, various, it's it's a variety of of things, I guess. I kind of like the fact that you dabbled and you concentrated in many different educational themes, which, you know, it it gives you a really well-rounded background. When you're finished doing what you do now, which we'll move on to, you are a Paralympic athlete. Your sport is judo. Can you tell me when you first became involved in martial arts? So my martial arts journey goes way back, way, way back. I initially started in Taekwondo. Um, I studied under my dad for a long time, pretty much from age three or four to right before I went off to college. And then I came back briefly for a couple of years and then his academy closed. So for 20 some odd years, I did Taekwondo. And then right around the age of 23 or 24, it was, it was December of 2013 when I started Judo. So I've, I've kind of been dabbling in martial arts my entire life. I know we had a conversation last week and I kind of liked the story you told me. You graduated from college you were, working, you were working at a Halloween store, which you really loved, I guess, to, to some, <laughs> some degree. But uh, you kind of just didn't know where to go um, with your life once you graduated, which, by the way, is a really common – that is a very common element of post-college life. But I thought it was incredibly unique what you decided – what you ended up deciding to do at, you know, 22 years old. Right. So I initially, for a season, I worked at a Halloween store. Uh, It was right after I had worked a different job and I wanted to move forward. And I worked at a Halloween store with my closest friend and it was loads of fun, but Halloween (laughs) stores are seasonal. And I just wanted that experience of retail because, you know, I was fortunate enough to have said friend be, a manager of a store and she hired me. I wasn't confident in, in myself, but she was confident when she hired me. She, she knew that I would do okay. Um, it's hard, I guess, when you are, when you're blind and you're like, well, how, what, what possible 
good can I do at a store? Like, how am I going to help these people who are looking for things and I can't see where they are? I was fine. She saw something in me that I clearly didn't. So (laughs) I'm extremely thankful for that experience. And then once the store was closed, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, because we we like to blow things way out of proportion, right? And be like, what are we going to do right now for the yes. rest of our lives? Right. We have to make a 20s. decision immediately. We must make a decision immediately. Because our, live, our lives, are, <laughs> they're, 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 just, they're just going right between our fingers. I mean, Absolutely. We need there's to this urgency. Now. Yeah, there's this urgency to be like, what great thing should I be remembered for? Right. And, um, you know, I just, absolutely. It must be today. Like every day has to be absolute picture perfect. Yep. So um, I just took a chance and visited a friend. They were doing a, a pizza party somewhere in Chicago. It was a blind skiing foundation, I think, pizza party. And I met up with a friend and he talked to me about judo. And I was like, gee, I've, I've always wanted to try judo. And taekwondo, it, it's great. But you can spar with someone and you'll just constantly, if you can't see them very well, you're going to constantly get kicked in the head like 90% of the time, which was me all the time. <laughs> I made, I made fine. I was fine. Absolutely fine with sparring, but I wasn't as effective as I wanted to be. And with judo, it's a little bit more level once you get your technique down, but I was starting as an adult. Um, so I have all of these techniques and tendencies that I'm used to from Taekwondo. So I had to relearn everything like how to do everything. It felt like I was a baby deer kind of like learning how to use my legs for the first time, even though I've done martial arts my entire life up until then. So, I mean, judo has been amazing. It's been amazing. You're not telling us this key thing, which is you didn't just try judo. You know, you didn't just give it a shot. You basically, you've dedicated a lot of your life now to judo for the past eight (laughs) years or so. I have. I think I'm just being modest and humble because uh, I don't. I don't particularly like to humble brag about <laughs> where I've been. Uh, a part of me is still like, did I deserve to go there? Did I deserve to? But at the end of the day, I can't trade that experience for the entire the entirety of the world. Um, I was very fortunate enough to go and compete in the Paralympic Games in 2016 in Rio, and only three years into the sport, that doesn't happen often at least not in my experience. I didn't think that that would happen in my lifetime. So for me, it still doesn't feel real that it happened. Um, Sometimes I forget that I even went there. That sounds ridiculous, but it almost feels surreal still that that happened to me in my lifetime. Well, and a lot of, I know a lot of Paralympic athletes. I mean, they start from a very young age. A lot of times I, I knew, I've known a number of people. One was a goalball player. Um, and uh, she competed in the Paralympics mm-hmm. on the American team a number of times. I knew somebody who was a downhill skier that started from a, a very young age. You started, I think, uh, I guess relatively late in comparison to a lot of people, and you, I mean, you managed to work your way up, so I don't think there's anything immodest about saying, hey, I, I worked to get to where I am now. I worked to get myself to the Paralympics and get into the condition that I was in. I basically took a dream and ran with it. I wasn't sure that I would ever make it, you know, and and still parts of me are like, did I deserve to be there? Because I was so young in the sport and I had just started. I think that's something that I battled with for so long is if I was worthy enough to be in that spotlight. And the more I think about it, I did put in the work. I did put in the work. I dedicated all of my time to learning and growing. And was I, was I where I wanted to be when I went to the games? No, absolutely not. 
if I could have had four more years, I definitely would have taken that. But things just went the way they did. I had a couple of very major hiccups that affected my performance. But at the end of the day, I still made it. And that's, that's something that I'm, I'm going to be proud of for the rest of my life. Well, and you got hurt very badly early yeah, extremely on. Extremely badly. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about that, um, that injury and the aftermath of that and the process of coming back? Um, so it was, I'll set the time. It was 2015, August, 2015. I just came back from Pan Am's. I had placed second and I was in my prime, but I came back with my place and I also came back with a mild concussion, <laughs> but I was in my prime, right? Like I was feeling good. My judo was getting better. And I was at a seminar the next month and I landed incorrectly and basically shattered my right arm, my humerus. And it was not humerus at the time, far from humerus, probably the most excruciating <laughs> thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. My very first ambulance ride to the ER, it was <sighs> God awful. It was awful. But that was when it truly hit me. Like everything that I had worked for was gone in that singular moment. But I think that in that time of, of healing from that was the time that I learned the most about myself. So uh, the injury, it was basically a, a butterfly spiral fracture or something really gnarly sounding. And uh, my arm was in three pieces. So, I mean, I couldn't shower by myself. I couldn't eat. I'm right arm, arm dominant. I couldn't work my guide dog. There was so many things that I couldn't do. And that's when it hit me full blast in the face. And I was like, this is what disability is. This is why I'm disabled right now. So, I mean, it was, it was awful. Like I said, I learned so much and I'm, I'm glad I came out of it alive. Was there a point during that time of healing that you feared you might not be able to come back? Oh, absolutely. I think that athletes, and who knows, I can put a, a myriad of other people into this category, but athletes, we throw so much of ourselves in terms of time and, and learning and, and travel. And it took me um, four hours round trip a day to go to practice. And I would go to practice somewhere between three to five times a week. And that's a lot of time to put in to travel just for a two hour practice. And once grad school started, that was a whole other thing to put on top of it, right? Like there's all these aspects of it that I could talk about. But being an athlete at that time in 2015, that was my entire identity. That was something that I had worked for for two and a half, three years, you know, just to make sure that I can have a chance at going to the games. And I lost it in a single moment. It was devastating. It was so devastating. So for the longest time, I want to say, gosh, Christmas, all the holidays were really, really rough. You know, I, I wasn't sure if my arm was going to make it. I had struggles with Medicaid because they wouldn't pay for treatment. So I was like, I'm blind. My arm is broken. Life is over. You know, <laughs> life is over because we catastrophize everything when we're in that really, really crappy headspace. Oh, sure. So everything is awful. Everything was awful. Like it was just this monstrous thing that I was like, I'm never going to make it out of here. I'm never, I can't claw myself out with one arm. You know, I'm not trying to be ableist by saying that. It's, it's just, I didn't know how to function. I didn't know how to have my own thoughts. I didn't know how to feel good again. There was all of these things that were so impossibly hard. Was there a point during that process that you felt that your worth as an athlete was so integral to your importance as a person, your uh, vitality, that you worried you weren't going to make it through if you couldn't 
qualify for the Paralympics. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like because I was in my prime at that time, I was like, I could only improve from here. And there was no expectation of an injury whatsoever because I was like, I'm being careful. You know, I, it's not going to happen to me because I'm being careful. And um, it was something that I was starting to get good at at that time. I was in my prime and I was excited about it because for the longest time, I, I mean, I still struggle with this. I sell myself short. I'm like, I don't know what I'm good at. And since I was grasping judo overall, I was excited about getting better. So when I got injured, it was like a complete 180 and I felt entirely worthless. How did that affect your, your mental health overall? Oh, it wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't great. So I struggle with certain mental health issues and it definitely escalated really bad swings for me to the point where if I was another person, I wouldn't want to be around me. It was kind of like I constantly had this gray cloud over me about everything. I was like, I already can't see, so why would anyone want to hang out with me? You know, like my arm doesn't work, so I can't really do the things that I want to do anymore. Why would anyone want to hang out? It would just, one thing would pile on top of another, and it would escalate to something that's, it's like a cacophony of, of really loud things in your head that you can't get mm-hmm. away from. I always think that mental health, especially when things are extremely difficult and you're, you're in a really just deter- deteriorating place, I wonder if it's kind of like a really loud blaring television in the back of your head and you just can't get rid of that sound. It just doesn't go away. All, all the sort of ideas about being worthless and not fit for living almost. Is, was it like that in any way? For me, it was kind of like a fire truck at the beginning of a parade. You know, mm-hmm. it's so loud that it's there, but you could see all the happiness surrounding it, but all you can hear is the fire truck. Uh, you blaring can hear the horn. wailing of the yep. sirens. <laughs> the wailing of the sirens. And you're just like, mm-hmm. I understand what this is for, but it's so loud that I can't really think about anything else. So, I mean, just the other day, the, there was a fire truck here and it was so loud I couldn't think straight. And my thoughts were similar to that where it was just blaringly in my face loud. How did you find your way up from that place? So I was fortunate enough to have been working with a nutritionist who put me in touch with a sports psychologist. And in a way, this is all the silver lining because that's what I went to school for (laughs) in the long run. But she put me in touch with a sports psychologist, the one who works at the Olympic Training Center, I guess the Olympic Paralympic Training Center now. But if it wasn't for her, you know, we were we put in a lot of work to make sure that I was safe. Um, we made sure that I had safety plans. She made sure to give me like things to do and to make sure that I had coping mechanisms. She checked in on me and I had my friends checking on me too. And the other important thing that I had that was vital uh, was, was my guide dog. She saved me, not just in the sense of she's a guide dog, but she saved me because she was another being that was there for me. Um, someone that depended on me and I couldn't have been okay without her. <laughs> she needed, she needed you to be there for her. Yes. Yeah. You did, you did make it out of that space and you ended up competing in 2016 in Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. And I want to sort of go back a little bit. I'm not sure if everybody quite understands that the Paralympics are on an exact parallel with the Olympic Games. The Olympics are held, the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics, both of them 
after those games, the Paralympics use the same stadiums, the same fields, the same, you know, swimming, swimming pool, same, you know, track, um, everything. And they live in the same exact Olympic village. So I think sometimes people get Paralympics and Special Olympics confused. Um, They're two very different organizations. Can you, do you want to elaborate on that at all? I guess first and foremost, I want to really emphasize that each athlete is, you know, their own individual person and the organization that they represent. It's important to acknowledge that title. I, I constantly have people come across me saying, oh, you went to the Olympics. And I was like, I never did go to the Olympics. I went <laughs> to the Paralympics. That's a true fact. But if you keep saying I went to the Olympics, I'm going to tell you that I didn't. Because for me, the Paralympic Games is a celebration of all abilities. And people put in a lot of time and effort. And it's, it's a mirror of the Olympic Games, right? It's a mirror of human spirit and um, athleticism and so many things. It's, it's everything and more, but it's specifically to celebrate people with physical disabilities, right? In terms of the Special Olympics, I can't really speak on that that much because I don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. But I do know that when it comes to the Special Olympics, a lot of athletes come from all over ages. There's no qualifications as far as I know. Don't get me wrong. Those athletes work just as hard to get there. They work, all of us do, all athletes do. Give credit where credit is due. Everyone works hard. But there are differences between each and every games. I just wish there was some parity between the Olympics and the Paralympics in terms of coverage, I agree. Um, press coverage, television coverage. I remember the first time I heard about the Paralympics was actually from television coverage. I was sitting with my uh, sister when I was uh, 20, I guess, and uh, they, there was actually some television coverage of those games. I believe it was Atlanta in 1996. But I remember she said, hey, you know, all these, this swimmer has no arms. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? (laughs) I said, you know, and coming as a young blind person, I was like, I didn't think anyone could compete on a competitive level in sports if they had no arms or no legs. You know, it, it, it really, just that television coverage for me as a young blind person was wow. And that's why I wish there was some parody so that kids with disabilities could see that there is so much you can do if you want to if you want if you want to compete if you want to try to work towards your best in in a specific athletic skill set so you competed in in rio then you began again uh, trying to qualify for the 2020 olympics but unfortunately, something called COVID-19 got in the way. Right. Where, where are you now with the process since the Paralympic Games have been canceled this year and will take place next year instead? I mean, the postponement was inevitable, I feel like. I wasn't sure when it was going to happen, but I am sure glad that they postponed it. I couldn't imagine preparing for the games right now with all of this going on. And the fact that they took athlete uh, safety and staff safety above all else as the main priority, it says a lot about, you know, the world as a whole, you know, the Mm -hmm. organizers and everything. It matters. Like who wants to be in a position where it's like, do I take my life over, over um, the games that I've worked so hard for? Like, you know, 
the obvious choice is to take your life, you know, like take your life and hold on to dear to it and stay at home. That's the obvious choice. And I'm glad they saw that. Certainly I was disappointed in not knowing if I was going to go because we still had two qualifiers left. I still have someone ahead of me. I'm number two, have the number two slot for, for the games. So at the moment I'm like, do I really want to risk things? Do I want to risk, you know, my health? Do I, do I want to risk getting my family sick? If I do go, what is the risk here? Mm -hmm. And that kind of determined everything for me. I like to think that I I'm humble. You know, I, I'd like to think that I, I try to consider others and when it comes to the games, you have to be selfish in a lot of ways. You know, you have to really, really, really want it. And in that time, I just didn't know. You know, when, when COVID started happening, I was like, is this truly something that I want when it's going to jeopardize the people around me? And my answer was no. I, I'd rather be safe and make sure that the rest of my family is safe. If I had gone to my qualifiers, if they were still held, who knows what I would bring back. Mm -hmm. I don't want to cause that kind of devastation to my family or to my friends. Well, you didn't have to make that decision, as it turns out. Right. Um, but what happens now in this increased time between today and next summer? What happens with the training regimen, the schedule? Is it just on hold? Or is there something that you need to maintain in terms of your, your fitness? There is absolutely stuff that I need to maintain. But it's also hard because of access to you know, access to training equipment, judo, it, you can do stuff by yourself, but you also need to rely on a partner to do a lot of judo. For example, you, you're throwing drills and your, your groundwork and things like that. You can certainly do it by yourself too, but it's not, at least for me, I can't feel if I'm doing it right or not. If I have no one there to spot me, if that makes any sense. So I try to keep up with at least <laughs> keyword is try, but I try to keep up with nutrition and I try to be active and, um, you know, I try to keep my mental health strong because ultimately, you know, if your mind can't keep up with your body, I mean, how well are you going to do anyway? Mm -hmm. So I've been doing a lot of homework, watching judo videos, talking to friends who are still working out, you know, just checking in with people, but ultimately watching a lot of videos and, and walking outside and so on and so forth. Well, luckily now with spring really uh, creeping in, I hope that will become a lot easier, at least mm -hmm. to, to, do the, to do the outside work for the next right. four or five months. Well, this is an organization called Blind Pride International. And so I want to talk about something about your identity that is part and parcel of who we try to be as an organization. You identify as queer. Can you tell me what that means to you? To me, it's kind of... It's kind of the umbrella beyond the LGBT acronym. Folks can argue that the Q stands for questioning, but sometimes other people might see it as Q stands for queer. For me, identifying as queer is kind of like asking a question. It's kind of inviting someone to ask a question about my identity in that regard. It's more, even more vague, even more ambiguous than LGBT. It's kind of like a safety net. It kind of poses that invitation to go beyond what it means to be LGBTQ, if that makes any sort of sense. I hope it does. Yes, but I think some people are going to say, hey, I understand what gay means. I understand what bisexual means, but I don't understand what this concept of queer means. I mean, does this mean that you just, you're, you're, you're just attracted to everybody? Does this, what does this mean? Because with sexuality, a lot of times, 
there is an emphasis placed on on anatomy on right. on gender and what do you like because that that becomes i think the core of the question well hey wait a minute here you know do you like male anatomy female anatomy you must know what you like but it almost seems like you're saying that you put the personality or the presence of the person ahead of the actual anatomical piece. Yes, absolutely. It's all subjective. I feel like it's all subjective and it's for, I feel like it's for everybody, you know, like there are folks who really, really want to use the term, for example, uh, lesbian, you know, they're like, I know that I like blank, you know, women or whatever, and that's final. So I'm just going to really take that label. But I feel like the word queer is more of the gray area and anybody could use it and people will understand what they're talking about. The history of it is not so great, but I feel like the word has been reclaimed to mean something more than what it used to be. Yeah, queer used to be a, a real insult. It was an extremely derogatory term. Absolutely. But there are a lot of terms that have been reclassified over time into something that is positive and appreciative of a person, not meant to be aggressively insulting. I think queer is one of those terms I think various races have taken terms that are typically derogative and among each other have made them more positive. Right. But yeah, I think queer is one of those terms now, especially with, uh, I would say, Generation Y and definitely millennials for sure. Right. I am kind of thinking that some of the anger comes from people. And I'll tell you, I'm in, I, I'm in Generation X. Some of that anger, I think, comes from this idea that, hey, you know, we fought to be out. We fought to be proud as gay and lesbian. I'm maybe bisexual people, but we, we fought for that. And we dealt with, with a lot of uh, pain. We dealt with a lot of isolation. We dealt with families disowning us. We dealt with friends refusing to understand who we are. We dealt with all this crap and we were able to finally have pride days and we were able to come out of that shame. And now here you come and you are going to dismantle all this that we have worked for. You're going to tear it apart and you're just going to decide to call yourself queer. How dare you come in here and do that? How do you feel about that premise? I think that this is a common theme for me, but it's, it's all subjective. I, I feel like the generation before me, no one's negating the work that was put in. No one is dismissing it. But I think it serves as a foundation for people to feel comfortable enough to express who they are in the way that they feel is best suitable for them. And I think that, that you know, the gray is good. We, we seem to want everything to be within the lines. We want to blend all the time, but sometimes blending is, is exactly that. You want to do more than blend to create a new color. And I think that's what's so beautiful about fluidity is that it doesn't matter what kind of colors you blend. Like ultimately you see the picture overall and we're still standing together as a whole. So do the words truly matter or is it about the people behind them? Do you feel like this generation has walked the bridge that the generation before you has constructed into something more forward thinking and, and more progressive and, and new. 
Absolutely. I think generations build on each other, right? And that, that creates a foundation and it creates a bridge. And because of all of the things that have happened and all of the, all of the advocacy and, and all the pain and the sweat and the tears and everything that was put into that, I have a platform and I have a voice because of that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, for example, coming out, it doesn't mean that coming out is, is, is not happening anymore. People are still coming out as it is to this day. It's not a new concept. It's just, you know, it's, it's personalized. And I think that's, it's very similar with sexuality and with, with gender. What do you say to somebody that might ask you, well, look, you, you identify as queer. So I don't know whether you would be attracted to me or not because of that, because it doesn't give me enough, doesn't give me enough knowledge about who you are. What would you say to somebody that comes at you with that type of argument? I think it's a matter of giving it time. It's obviously different per person. But for me, I need time to get to know someone. And I don't focus on their appearance right away. If they choose to interact with me and, you know, if, if we continue and we have that beautiful chemistry and it's like time passes without even a blink, then it turns into something more, right? So I would, I would ask or request that person to give it time. When did you first kind of have a conceptualization that you were queer as opposed to fitting in, in the GLB kind of terminology? Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, I'm still grappling with all the nuances that I don't understand. And gosh, I want to say it's been like a good, it's been like a good four or five years and I'm still kind of all over the place when it comes to it. I'm still learning every day. And I think that others should too. You know, it, every day can be different. Um, we can keep the things that we know best with us, but it doesn't hurt to progress further from there. I think that this is a really fascinating discussion that I hope we here at Blind Pride will have more of. In fact, I hope that maybe at a future convention, we will host a workshop um, on, this, on this topic because I think there's so many different cadences to the concept of queer and gender fluidity that I really hope we will explore this in future. So you just recently graduated with a master's. What do you plan to do with that in the future? Depending on the COVID um, situation, I, I would like to work with athletes in all walks of life, but ultimately uh, be an advocate for athletes and um, use various different tools to make sure that, you know, we take care of those competing. I think that everyone has this illustration that athletes, like, they, they have it all put together, but that's not the case. Like, there's a lot of mental skills that go into being an athlete. And uh, like I was saying before, when you're an athlete and that's all you have, it's like you forget that there is a whole new world full of options out there. So I'm hoping to work with all people from all walks of life on whatever they want to, whatever they want to pursue. I'm hoping to be a performance and mental skills coach or consultant, particularly working with athletes, but really with anyone. I'm willing to talk about anyone or talk with anyone about anything <laughs> and just, just really kind of encourage conversation and encourage good thoughts and vibes. I think that's ultimately what I'm about. What do you look most forward to doing once a lot of the shelter in place rules have been suspended and things ease up in terms of 
ability to get out because you've been you've been basically uh, sheltered in place for about what two months now like a two lot months. of us yeah what do you absolutely. most want to do well I'm trying to see the silver lining of every situation um, so I've been reframing everything instead of stuck at home I'm safe at home sheltering in place you know is just an opportunity for me to hone my craft at whatever hobbies I've been neglecting. <laughs> so uh, I think once I leave, I'm going to, or once I'm able to leave, uh, I, I might make a trip into the city or I might go on a long trip somewhere. I definitely want to hang out with my friends, uh, have a couple bonfires. There's just so much that I want to do. Go back to judo, so much, so much. I understand you've been uh, enjoying a lot, of, a lot of one of your favorite things lately, which is musicals on, yes. on YouTube. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We had a we had a BPI moment the other day. Can you tell me what your favorite musical is? Ah, uh, don't make me gush, Leah. My goodness, <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. I absolutely adore Jekyll and Hyde. It's my favorite musical because um, there's just so much woven into that entire show, and it's so complex. And granted, I'm sure there's shows that are more complex, but there's just this really intricate push and shove of the the protagonist. And I, just the music, it engulfs me every time. I'm just so mesmerized by the show. I knew I could get you uh, uh, really excited about, about yeah. Jekyll and Hyde if we brought that up. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good show. The love for that show just comes like pouring through your voice when you talk about it. And you're a lucky person because I still haven't seen it. And oh, always avoid have. the David Hasselhoff version. I'm sorry for the Hoff <laughs> fans out there, but avoid the Hasselhoff version. Avoid it. <laughs> if there's any Hasselhoff fans, we're going to get nasty. Ooh. We're going to get nasty feedback. Ooh, bring on the hate. <laughs> bring on the fire. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us on Pride Connection today. It has been a truly wonderful experience speaking with you. And I hope you will join us again. We'd love to have you co-host in the future. And we also really want you to keep us updated on your Paralympic quest for 2021. Thanks for having me. We have a few minutes left in the program. And since I am hosting the show today, I got to make some decisions about what I want to do. A few weeks ago, Pride Connection hosted an interview with Dwayne Estes. A poem was mentioned during that interview that I wrote and performed in 2001. I was much younger then, and you can hear it in my voice, but we wanted to share that poem with the Pride Connection audience. Enjoy. I'm going to do something for you called a slam poem. It's called Vision. My friend Dwayne is a proud man, gay pride jubilant and vital in every step, burning strong and steady amid that St. Louis inner city heat, this crazy gay boy force bursting from him so strident. I want to inhale every last ounce. Dwayne is a musician, his fingers nimbly caressing those yielding piano keys, music like electrical current driving him miles beyond ordinary. Dwayne is scared, though, and fear clouds his phrases often. This man who knows dozens who have evolved into old men far too fast. This rock who defies bigotry and idiocy with steel grit. This man who will accept any musical challenge with grace. His eyesight is fading, and he is terrified. He rarely articulates this fear to me, 
but I hear it in the desperation edging his questions that finally cut horror that laces bad dreams. I hear it when he grumbles about learning blind skills, learning to read computer screens through synthetic speech, learning to retrieve some dropped item without visual assistance, learning to navigate his neighborhood without sight. He asks me if it gets easier, and I know he fears getting lost somewhere without hope of regaining his stride, waking up some morning with nothing but tears streaming from his eyes, the light bulb dead and irreparable. This man who has seen so much, fought so much, played so much, is losing the path, and I want to shake him, shout at him, show him this is no excuse to surrender. But this is war! The same war he fights every time some ignorant fool yells, Goddamn faggot! The same war he's fought to drench himself in queer fire in a world shrinking with unrelenting violence. I want to hug this proud human being, this man who fears his fading eyesight more than anything else in his life, and I want him to see beyond to a world other than eyesight. I want to dig my fingers into his shoulders hard and rough and say, Dwayne, you're losing your sight. But goddammit, man, don't you ever... Lose your vision. Thank you, everybody. Well, I think one poem is just not quite enough. While I was going through my files looking for vision, I stumbled upon another poem that I performed at the Friends in Art Showcase at the ACB convention in 2006. I thought there were some parallels between that poem and what Sarah was speaking about earlier on the show in terms of coming back from grave pain, injury, or mental strife. This is called Toolbox, and I wrote it for my grandfather, who unfortunately passed away in 2016. An ex-girlfriend said I lacked the tools to ease my own pain, and for a moment I was three again. Rummaging in my grandfather's toolbox while he stood on a ladder, hammer in hand. I'd pass him nails, screws, sandpaper, my fingers sifting through the metal box full of answers. He built a house for my parents. I would sit and play with toy tools as he worked, pounding nails with a tiny hammer, grinning up at him as he spoke to me from above, building the house along with him falling asleep while he pounded on a ladder under July sun, safe in the smell of wood and sawdust. My grandfather was a master carpenter, poised atop high-rises with only his toolbox for company, crouching on hot summer roofs inches from empty air, straddling sliver-thin beams high above concrete. He was fearless with tools in his hand. He balanced on edges for over 30 years, his mother dying along the way, his daughter eloping without forewarning, his granddaughter fighting eye cancer that eventually took her sight, his footing sure on slippery ledges through it all, the most competent of any worker. I think of my grandfather now, wishing I knew which tools to take in hand, but the box is empty my fingers holding nothing but still air. I'm not fearless like him. I wonder what he thought about, poised on all those roofs. Did he know he was one misstep away from the void? One splintered cross-section of a beam away from a fall? Did he know that one broken ladder rung could be the end? 
Did he ever just want to lose himself in the hum of his power saw, forget to come down again? Or did he ever think of just jumping, his tools falling aimlessly behind him? I'm poised on a beam without a toolbox to lean on, the ladder lying on cement far below. My grandfather is 80 and sleeps most of the time, so I can't ask him for the answers anymore. I must find a way to climb down, grasp a foothold again, build dreams that can come true, invent tools to replace my grandfather's rusted ones, because I can see smiles looking up at me from the ground, faces upturned and waiting for me to build my way home. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Pride Connection. Thanks again to Sarah for her willingness to be interviewed. And thanks to you for listening. Anthony and Gabriel will be back next week. And we will be speaking with Beverly Leslie, who you may remember from Will and Grace. If you have any comments or feedback about the show, please email membership at blindlgbtpride.org. If you would like to join our organization, please visit our website at blindlgbtpride.org. We're going to end with one more treat today. We spoke with Dwayne Estes a few weeks ago about his music. However, we haven't actually played a sample of his amazing pianist skills. So today we are going to end the show with his instrumental rendition of Through the Fire. This was a song that was made popular in the mid-80s by Shaka Khan. We hope you enjoy it. Stay safe, be well, and we will see you next week. Good night.
have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. They will find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers.